Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 134 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me filling in for Aaron this week is friend of the show and first-time guest, MJ Smith. Welcome Hello. to the sh- welcome to the show, oh. man. Sorry, uh, I didn't know there was more. Once again, oh. first-time guest. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, man. It's good to be anxious and excited about that. We're glad to have you on the show, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this week we're covering the latest in what honestly feels like a season-filled with biopics. Uh, we're covering Bohemian Rhapsody, chronicling the life of and career of Queen and its legendary frontman, Freddie Mercury. And what better way to converse about it than with a music-loving man such as yourself? Now, before we get into that, I uh, wanted to give you guys a quick reminder that we have our Patreon donor pick out there for the month of November. If you guys are interested in that uh, and being a part of that voting for as little as a buck a month, you can be a part of that. Just go to patreon.com slash film. And you'll be able to select uh, any tier of ways to support us on the show. That tier gets you votes, and you can be a part of that uh, voting process. And this month, we have our picks are movies about cooking. And we have Chef, Ratatouille, Julie and Julia, Burnt, and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I'm getting hungry just thinking about any of those movies that we'd be covering. So... Get your votes in and uh, pick your favorites, and maybe you will get the one that you vote on. So we'll see. Any of them are going to be exciting to talk about. All right. So that being said, all things are out. We're going to give our obligatory spoiler alert. Uh, It is a biopic, so you will get some kind of historical uh, lesson in our discussion. But we're going to be talking about the movie specifically, and so there will be things about the, the movie itself that, you know, you may not know, and you won't want to know until you see it. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get into it. So if you haven't seen the movie, go see it, come back, enjoy the discussion with it. MJ, let's start with you with our one-word takeaways. Uh, what is the one word that you would say would symbolize or sum up your experience with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody? Um, I would say confidence, and I don't necessarily mean in the filmmaking. The filmmaking's fine as far as I'm concerned, I meant the confidence that Freddie Mercury kind of exuded throughout his entire life. Um, And it's interesting to see in the movie the moments where he's super confident in his talent, but he's not that confident in himself as a person, uh, just like as a human being existing in the world. And it's, I think the movie, one of the, the, the things that the movie does well is it illustrates that kind of dichotomy of he knows he has a great voice. We see that from the beginning. And that's something you can pick up on even when you see live clips of Freddie Mercury. That's something that they really tapped into. But especially given, you know, him being a bisexual man in the 80s, the height of the AIDS epidemic, being a victim of that and coming to terms with that when he loved someone like Mary Austin so much. Um, it gave him a lot behind the scenes that he had to deal with. And I think the movie hit a really nice balance between showing how confident he was as a performer and how just comfortable and at home he felt on stage in front of, you know, a hundred thousand people in some gigs and just how kind of broken and sad he was when he wasn't doing that. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to see that on the big screen and how the comfort level just dramatically increased with the number of people. Uh, the opening shot was not really uh, it foreshadowed in, in in a number of ways, but I think it also mentioned visually, or at least it described visually, just how much that gave him the energy. I mean, he yeah. was the natural extrovert when it came to this, and that shot was so visually appealing to know that this was a movie and this was a life about the band, but it was equally and probably more so about him as a person. And so to see that contrasted with, as the movie goes on, having him show some of that, not really introversion, but that discomfort with not being around a ton of people and how he tried to manufacture that in some ways, it really, I think the story really did well in, in showing that off. Yeah. Yeah, he even has a line about it, too, when uh, Mary comes to visit him when he's recording a solo album. And he's, uh, she sees the cocaine. Mm -hmm. And he says that the the condition of being human is something that needs a little anesthesia. Mm, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that line. Uh, well, for me, the the word that comes to mind, and I had several. I, I remember leaving the theater. I went to go see a late late show on a Friday night, which being almost 40 years old is probably not the, it's not the norm for me. I'm usually in bed. Um, by like 10, even on weekends. And so you're coming out of a, of a late movie. There's like five cars in the parking lot. And I'm like, man, what did I just experience here? And there were about four or five words that came to mind. Uh, you know, you talk about flamboyance and, um, experimental, uh, family forgiveness. I mean, these are words that I think would probably accentuate the pieces of the movie that, that I really, uh, that really appealed to me. But the word that I think summed up my entire experience of it is the word acceptance. And I think that anytime a biopic comes out, I, th I, I believe there's some of the more scrutinized pieces of filmmaking and rightly so. I mean, they have historical subject matter at their core and the narrative choices that writers and directors choose to take with them is always up for grabs in terms of being criticized. And I say criticized in the most positive way, like, you know, constructive criticism and things like that. So in the world of movie criticism, I think biopics get a huge spotlight shined on them because they're, they're not only pressured to be a great story, but they're also underneath that backdrop of, okay, how accurate was this? Because we know every biopic is different in terms of the way it approaches a person's life or an event in history. And we've covered a few on the show and as we've done that, I've actually learned to have more grace towards that creative liberty taken in these types of films. And Bohemian Rhapsody, in its narrative, and really my reaction to it, echoes this strong idea about what it means to be accepted, to take what we are given, and in spite of any flaws or misgivings, um, it's really a celebration. In this case, someone, but also the movie, for me, for what it is. And... I admit that my one word takeaway came out of a really great discussion that has continued to be an ongoing one about how film critics have approached Bohemian Rhapsody. And there's a there's a big long thread in the Facebook group. If you guys aren't part of the group, go ahead and get yourself hooked up there and and find this thread because there's a lot of great discussion about how we approach biopics in general. And what we deem as appropriate film criticism, is film criticism 
taking itself too seriously when it comes to these kinds of movies and wanting to expect something else versus what it actually should be. And I wanted to open up the discussion, MJ, by asking about you specifically. What kind of expectations do you have when you go into a biopic? First of all, do you like biopics or is this a kind of exception to the rule for you? And if it's not, what do you want to see from your biopics when you go see them? You know, I am not a big believer in guilty pleasures. Um, I think you should like what you like and not be ashamed of it. But if I had to pick a guilty pleasure, I would say it's probably biopics. I love them. Uh, a lot of them are real samey. Uh, a lot of them are real samey. But I, there's something about learning about someone. And oftentimes, watching a movie about someone makes me want to learn more about them. And I just love learning stuff. So I will watch a movie about a person and then go look up and see not necessarily how accurate the movie is, but just more about the things that the movie has to gloss over because by its very nature, the movie is not going to be a comprehensive, you know, retelling of this person's entire life story. I mean, even this, we see, we meet Freddie Mercury when he's 18. There's a whole life he lived before that, being born in Zanzibar, going to music, uh, taking music lessons at the age of eight, going to boarding school. We don't see any of that. We don't even see him going to Smile, the band that would be Queen. Um, we don't even see him going to a lot of their gigs, but he tells them, I've been following you for a while. And, that you know, that's all true about him. So, you know, when uh, because biopics are really condensed, I like to go and I like to use them almost as a conversation starter. Uh, with myself, I guess, to go and look up more about that person if I'm interested in them. Agree wholeheartedly with you. In fact, I've just recently had this experience. My father-in-law a year ago uh, let me borrow the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. Oh, mm -hmm. And um, I was supposed to visit him uh, this month for Thanksgiving, or my family is. And so I wanted to go ahead and knock that book out. That thing is like I mean, I don't know if you've seen the hardcover. It's yes. pretty thick. It's like two inches thick, and it's not large format print either. I mean, this is, it's a, it's an, it's an exhaustive biography. And fortunately, having vacation uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was able to just plow through it. And the thing is, man, I couldn't put it down because it's such a great narrative of an entire life of one man. And I, for fun, what I've been doing is. In conjunction with that book, I've queued up th the three different, you can call them biopics, related to Steve Jobs. I, I watched the Pirates of Silicon Valley that came out a number of years ago, produced by TNT, which is a, a favorite of mine, um, that really highlights the war between Apple and Microsoft, and, and really more about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs in particular. And then I watched the, I guess it was the 2000, early 2000 one with Ashton Kutcher, the Jobs one which puts him at the very beginning when he releases the iPod and then takes him all the way back to the beginning of his life at, uh, at Reed. And then it highlights his rise and fall and return to Apple. And then of course I watched the one I think called just it's Steve jobs with Michael Fassbender with the great Aaron Sorkin screenplay, which centers around three big events in Steve jobs life, three big uh, product launches and so as I'm walking through that, I'm thinking not one of these movies told the complete story. Those movies told the stories that they were trying to tell for a particular purpose. 
And I think that's what biopics are successful at is they tell a certain narrative based on what the creative team is trying to get across. And so in that regard, my expectations going into to a biopic are almost to be influenced and encouraged to read more about who this person is or who this band is or what this event was all about. And, and I think that's intentional because movies, they give us up, upwards of two, two and a half hours of a story of an entire life of a person and they're not meant to tell us all the details. And so for that, I can be more forgiving when you have composite characters or when you change maybe the order of how things happen. And granted, I fully admit that that can be very manipulative, but that's what film is. Film is emotional manipulation at its core. And we should in some ways celebrate that as weird as that sounds, because that's part of the reason why we go is to be entertained and emotionally manipulated. We want to feel something. We want to connect with something or someone but at the same time, it also gives us, as a tertiary uh, result, information. It tells us, hey, this is about a person that I didn't know a lot about. And look, I grew up child of the 80s. And so like most people, Wayne's World was my introduction into Bohemian Rhapsody as a song. And eventually, in fact, that was probably my first or second CD I ever bought was the Wayne's World soundtrack. And I would listen to Bohemian Rhapsody on repeat. But I know that you're a music guy, and I wanted to ask in particular about Bohemian Rhapsody. Was there something about this movie that drew your attention to it? Do you have any connection with Queen as a band in some way? And if so, how did that shape your expectation and viewing experience? Yeah, um, I love Queen a lot. Um, I don't know if I could go so far as to say they're one of my favorite bands of all time, but they are one of the bands that has had one of the biggest influences on me, they've just kind of been an, a, a staple of my life. And it's, uh, I think this movie was a long time coming as a result of it. And, you know, it's, it's, we'll, we'll probably talk about this later, but in, in particular, the live aid performance was something there was, there was a point when I was in high school where I was watching their specific live aid performance once a week. I had borrowed the DVD from someone and I, I, I was obsessed with that thing. And then um, my dad for my birthday one year, um, his, his, his go-to gift for me is always new music, either music, music that I haven't heard from someone that I love or music from someone that I'd heard of, but wasn't overly familiar with. He introduced me to Bob Seger, Steely Dan, uh, Cream, um, Led Zeppelin. So one year my dad bought me Queen at Wembley. Um, which was, it's actually uh, on the 1986 It's a Kind of Magic Tour DVD. And since high school, that's been a staple of my uh, watching. It's one of my go-to concert films that I watch. Uh, I was just watching it this week in preparation for this movie. So uh, for Bohemian Rhapsody, I was pretty primed for it to be the target audience for it. And I actually was a little underwhelmed by the trailers headed in. Part of that is maybe a failure of expectations management on my part. Part of it is knowing kind of the behind the scenes that happened with Sasha Baron Cohen and Brian May back when they were getting ready to really gear up and, and have that version of the queen story told on film. Um, so it's, it's a movie I've had a weird relationship and expectational relationship with because 
I think it's a movie that was a long time coming and it's, I should be the target audience for, but it, it honestly, I was so kind of on the fence about it that I couldn't, I was so nervous about it that it was, it was a really hard decision for me to see it until you asked me to be on the show and that solidified like, oh yeah, I will go see it then. So I was just really, my expectations were so high for it. Another one um, that was like that for me was, was Walk the Line when that came out because Johnny Cash has been, uh, and even is definitely an even bigger influence on my life than Queen. So um, this had crazy high expectations for me. Man, and I'm and I'm glad that you were able to 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 make the showing, obviously, because this would have been a really awkward podcast if you hadn't seen it. So, uh, so thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and I didn't have a lot of high expectations going in this, but that didn't mean that I had low expectations. What really excited me was the semi familiarity with the band and with Freddie Mercury. And the kind of the tertiary relationship I have with those bands, because like you, my dad was influential in the music that I listened to, but the, that influence came from me working summers at the place that he worked as a, as a grunt outside in the hot Arkansas sun. And we'd ride to work together and we'd have the classic rock station on and music and bands and songs that he grew up to. That's what I began to find myself compelled to listen to again i'm i'm not going to deny my child of the 80s love for for that kind of era but i tell my wife and i tell other people that i feel like i was born in the wrong decade because i gravitate towards old school elton john and and kansas and bob dylan you know these 1960s Bands that are really more folksy singer songwriters, some anthem uh, bands like Boston, things like that. And I and, and Queen was never really a part of that for me because I think they were on the latter part of the seventies and into the early eighties. So they started hitting me when I was growing up, and their popularity kind of kind of revived itself with things like Wayne's World. But my expectations going in were really more about Rami Malek and how he was going to portray Queen. Like, honestly, what sold me was the still about a year ago of him performing as, I'm going to call him the, you know, the the mustache (laughs) Freddie Mercury. And I was like, oh my gosh, he is a spitting image of the guy. I would, and I was excited just to see that performance. And of all the criticism that's taken place, that's the one criticism that's very consistent, which is that he owns the role of Freddie Mercury. And I... I have no reference point except for what I've seen on television and in movies, but I think they're right. I think he completely owns the role as Freddie with his mannerisms, with the way he talks, the way he just responds. It's just, it's just phenomenal. And while I love that, I don't think it needs to be the thing that carries the movie. Like you have to have a complete package when it comes to your enjoyment of, of a film. And so leading into that, I wanted to, put out two separate quotes. Um, I'll call them one a positive, one a negative. These were really like some pull quotes that I got from Rotten Tomatoes, and I wanted to get your reactions to them, okay? And I wanted to ask you, for, from your perspective, because obviously critis- film criticism can be both objective and subjective depending on what you're talking about. If you say a DC film is too dark, that could be both objective and subjective in that compared to something else, yes, it's dark uh, visually and otherwise, but, you know, is Suicide Squad darker than Man of Steel? You know, that kind of thing. So the first quote 
is uh and again both of these are, are pulled from rotten tomatoes it says some of the liberties do mercury and queen an injustice but most are harmless if dim a hundred small things wrong barely matter when there are one or two big things right and then the second one is ideally a film like this would attempt to add to or to contextualize a legacy instead bohemian rhapsody tries to sanctify it pack it in bubble wrap to protect it from causing or being caught in any friction. What do you, what do you get from those two? How do you respond to those kinds of quotes? Is there some truth to those or is, are they bollocks? <laughs> you no, know, it's, this is a weird movie for me. It's a movie that ultimately I landed on. Um, I know it's the, the, the critic V audience disparity is huge. Um, on this one. I have a theory about that, which is that the end is very strong. And I think if you stick the landing on a movie, people tend to overall have a positive opinion of it. For me, the movie's not an outright disaster. It's kind of okay. And I think that both of those quotes are true. There are so many big things that go right. I think this is a conversation. I know this is a conversation I had on my own podcast about uh, first man, you know, does historical accuracy matter? Um, given that the emotional crux of that film didn't happen <laughs> in real life, but basically all the science parts did. Um, and we, we talked about whether or not that mattered. And ultimately we decided on yes and no. And that's kind of what these two quotes are. This quote, the, the, the first quote is that there are a lot of liberties taken and, I feel like there are a hundred little things they got wrong, but there's also a couple big things they got wrong too that really changed the narrative of Queen's story and Freddie Mercury's story that don't quite sit right with me. Okay. Um, but I think that as far as getting the broad strokes of Queen across, it's more successful than it's not. Okay. Um, but I think there are two, there, there are maybe two or three, um, glaring mistakes uh, okay. in regards to them that, that really stick out to me. Okay. So let's, I want to talk about those, but I wanted to give my reaction to these two. I, I think you're right. I think there's definitely truth in both of them. And I, if I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, I would lean more towards the first than the second in terms of the support of just because I love a good story and I love feeling really good about one comprehending a story because <laughs> that's that's one of the things is i've walked out of at least two or three movies going what did i just watch and really either being very frustrated or very amazed and i don't like that conflict <laughs> because i just go i want to be smarter than i am right now and did i get it did i understand that because people around me are like that was awesome i'm like what was awesome i don't know i didn't feel that way obviously with this but that second quote in particular gives a sense that it seems as though Queen's story, Freddie Mercury's story, was diminished because it was being packaged in a very specific way. Now, again, not having that history and not knowing enough about the band and about the man outside of the big highlights. We'll call them the, the highlights of Freddie Mercury's life besides his his pr- performance aspect, but also his sexuality and his and his um contraction of aids i didn't know much about the band in fact i was talking to a friend of mine yesterday 
and I was I was talking to him about the movie and, and my response to it, and I'd mentioned that that still of Remy Malik from from that particular era, and I said, he said, yeah, but did he always dress like that? And I was like, no, but that's the only time I really knew him. I didn't know him in the early days with long hair and the and the the more, I guess, I don't want to say cross dressing, but the more effeminate, uh, stylized costumes that he wore i didn't know that portion of him so i don't know one from the other what creative liberties were taken without looking up after the fact oh okay so he really didn't know about his contraction of aids until after live aid and um the band was never that far removed from when they were they last played together and so i think well that did that disseminate or did that take away from my viewing experience i don't think so because i felt like that resolution with the band wasn't the big climax for me i mean this was always going to be whether it meant to or not a story about freddie mercury and his journey and so when i when i see stuff like that happen or i know about i know those liberties have been taken and things have been switched around that forgiveness kind of plays into it because the story is about him and sometimes you have to manipulate historical pieces or maybe you don't. And I, I'd like you to chime in on that with those, with those big pieces that you were telling me about, but I feel like you have to have some of that kind of modification in order to enhance what you're trying to say about a person's life. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to do these bits without comparing it too much to walk the line, but as far okay. as I'm concerned, walk the line is the gold standard for musical biopic. Okay. Um, but so one of the big things for me is I really feel like the movie should have been rated R and not because it needed to upplay the sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle necessarily, but there are certain things about Freddie that were very R rated. He swore like a sailor in interviews and on stage, um, not in the movie at all. I think that, for better or worse, that's part of who he was. Um, the party scene, I feel like it just kind of was... This is... And I know I just said that it didn't need to play up the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect of it. But that party scene, it was kind of an infamous night um, because of how many drugs were at that party. It was the first real glimpse into um, the the excess of that world that a lot of... Um, that Queen was participating in that a lot of the 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 public at large saw. Um, famously, he had hired little people to walk around with mirrors of cocaine strapped to their head that people could just do off the top of these people's heads. And in the movie, they're just handing out gifts to people. And I was like, ah, come on, <laughs> you know. And that was one of the that was one of the things that ultimately left Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, led him to leave, leave the movie originally is that he wanted a kind of warts and all portrayal of Freddie and Brian May wanted sort of, I, I wouldn't go so far as the second quote says to say bubble wrapped version, but he wanted to kind of sanitize it a little bit. Um, one of the other things has to deal with um, Freddie's sexuality, but if we're not going to talk about that yet, we can talk about that later. Um, and then for me, it was kind of a big deal that, you know, Freddie wasn't diagnosed with AIDS until 1987. I know you got to work that in there. Uh, well, he wasn't officially diagnosed with AIDS until 1987. And that Queen hadn't 
it, it, it wasn't necessarily that Queen hadn't not been on tour, um, cause they had just finished a, a tour two months before the Live Aid concert. That's whatever. I didn't like the animosity that they portrayed of Freddie doing the solo album because by the time, um, Freddie's first solo album came out, Roger Taylor, the biggest source of pushback in the band, according to the movie, had already released two solo albums of his own. So they weren't, they were all fine with solo albums. Um, so that felt just real disingenuous to me. And I didn't, I didn't like that. Yeah. I, knowing that after the fact, it diminished my movie experience a little bit with that because they are important pieces. And I get as a storyteller, you're trying to create tension to the moment where the live aid performance is the landing that is stuck. And you want to give it as much weight as possible. Um, and so from a historical standpoint, I think that is a faux pas on, on the part of the, of the filmmakers in that you're sort of crafting this, this conflict that didn't exist to begin with. I, I want to, and this is just my theory going back to your, your first criticism about the, the lack of an R or at least not the lack of an R rating, but the lack of being fully raw of Freddie's life. And I think that had, had you made this movie, not you, MJ, obviously the, had a, had the filmmakers gone the route of the warts and all approach and showing, showing the debauchery and the, um, just the, the wild side, the, the, the out of, out of control, I guess would be the word to describe him, but just the, the the no holds barred the no filter freddie mercury maybe it would have changed the tone of what would have happened at that i don't know if the live aid concert would have been nearly as powerful if that had been the case because if i'm thinking about it and i'm i'm watching this guy's life go from you know fast and furious to a slow burn detrimental dangerous place if he's being set up as a in a, in a real way as being sort of this guy who's just completely ruining his life and you're you're making it such a such a dark thing i don't know that that redemptive story that redemptive ending that the live aid concert sort of symbolizes would be nearly as impactful that's not to say that it was a bad choice or a good choice but i think that had it been rated r had you gotten all that raw out there i don't know that the ending would have been nearly as powerful or as hopeful. And that may not have been singer and company's intent. They may have been trying to celebrate him in some way. Yeah. That, and, and that, go ahead. That's, that's a good point. I think for me, the party scene being in there felt almost like a middle finger to Sasha Baron Cohen of like, gotcha. we're still okay. going to do it. So I think that's where it was stemming from, for me is like, okay. when Sasha Baron Cohen left, he specifically referenced the parties that he wanted to show in the movie. And Brian May and co, you know, who are the people who have the life rights to Freddie didn't sign off on that. And yeah. then all of a sudden we get that party, but we get a very cleaned up version of that party in this version of the movie. Gotcha. And it felt kind of, it felt like a little too petty to me. Gotcha. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's completely justified. I, not knowing the extent and the extreme of, of that, this is, this is the thing that I enjoy about not having a lot of 
a lot of history with that type of with this with Freddie Mercury in general is that there was a consistency throughout the movie that didn't feel out of place. It felt very much heightened in relationship to what was happening before and what happened afterwards. And so if it was a middle finger to Sasha Baron Cohen, it was an effective middle finger in terms of being, for me, it was effective within the narrative itself that I was watching because I didn't not having that backstory of wanting to dumb down stuff that felt extreme for me. That felt very consistent. It, it felt intense from the sense of here's where we were and now we're here. And then here's where all that led to. Um, and so I think for the sake of the narrative, it was consistent, but I get the frustration in the fact that you're basically teasing something that was a lot worse than what you portrayed it as. And so in that, in, in that case, I think that you could call those kind of kid gloves that some critics have called the way that Mercury's life is portrayed on screen. And it, I mean, it could be translated as being idolized. I think it's more tame. I mean, that, and that would probably be the, the better way to describe it. But I think that that exists in, in a lot of biopics. Uh, you don't, you see what you want to see as a filmmaker. And just like when you adapt a book to a movie, whether it's a fiction or a nonfiction, you're going to put the elements in that are going to enhance the tone of story that you're trying to tell. Freddie Mercury's life, I think, and maybe you can clarify this, it could have been portrayed in a way that was like, here's the life of a person who let rock and roll and that lifestyle make him who he was for better or worse. Or it could be, let's celebrate the life of what it means to be a part of a band that didn't really care how people perceive them because they were reinventing themselves every every album, which I think that's what I think that's the film that we got was the latter and not the former. Yeah, I agree with that, but I think there's a way and it doesn't necessarily lie in an R rating. Um, I know I said I was going to try to avoid as many comparisons to walk the line as possible, but I think that's <laughs> something that walk the line really does hit the nail on the head of, you know, um, Johnny Cash more than once, by the way, let pill addiction really seep into his life in a really bad way. Um, and, in that movie, we just see his first struggle with it ever. And we see him come out the other side of it. I don't know too much about Freddie Mercury post the AIDS diagnosis. I assume he stopped a lot of the stuff he was doing. Um, so I think uh, I'm kind of of two minds of it because I like the timer of the Live Aid concert. I like it when a biopic has a timer on it, um, much like uh, Walk the Line has the timer of the Folsom Prison concert. We see up through the Folsom Prison concert and then a little bit after where he's clean and sober and uh, asks June to marry him. And then the movie's over. Um, this, I feel like the Live Aid concert is really important in the career of Queen. But I think you could have, if you would have maybe blown it out one more year to that Queen at Wembley concert that I have on DVD... You could have gotten the same effect. And now this is getting into what I wanted from the movie. Not necessarily what I wanted, but a way that the movie could have had its cake and eaten it too. I just felt like it, this version of showing his addiction felt a little secondary. And I don't know if I liked that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And it, it's true that his addiction and his, his lifestyle were key components of who he was. And I see within some of the conversations on on social media, the argument for and I, and I live in this camp is that the I don't believe the filmmakers wanted that to be 
the centerpiece of his life, his his sexuality and his addictions, although they did help define who he was. And so you can't deny that. But I think that because they were so prominent from a media standpoint, and the film really hints, does more than hint at this, the, the press conference, I think, is one of the more powerful scenes in the movie for me in the way it's filmed, the hard cuts and the flashes and the blurs, because I think it captures what he's feeling in that moment of like all of this culmination of who he is and trying to understand who he's trying to be and who he's supposed to be versus who he is and all these things that are help that are defining him without him wanting that. I think that the movie, it doesn't go full on into it, but within the confines of its overall structure and tone, I think it does it effectively. At least it did for me. And as we're talking about that, you make the comparison to Walk the Line. It's pretty well known that uh, Rami Malek didn't sing the songs. And this was, I think, another, I don't know if it was a strong criticism, um, but I know it was one that it's it's come up. And in in some cases, I think he, he lip sank. In others, it was a combination of his voice along with a well-known Mercury uh, imitator. His name is Mark Mattel. And I, as I was thinking about that, I know in Walk the Line, we have actual people singing. And we have, you know, Joaquin Phoenix doing Johnny Cash. And I remember watching that movie and going, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Not because he sounded like Johnny Cash, but because he captured the Cash sound. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And that's that's the thing is is the the him not singing totally kind of stuck in my craw a little bit because once again, walk the line, gold standard as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and they did do the the singing and and you know I've I've seen several people say well you know Freddie was a once in a lifetime talent like you just can't sing like Freddie Mercury and uh, you just can't sing like Johnny Cash either but they they did it enough to where the essence of it came through. And I mean, they got a Freddie Mercury sound alike to help on the soundtrack. So, and there are Queen cover bands besides the Queen Experience, which Mark Mattel is the lead singer of, and that's the officially endorsed by Queen cover band. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's not impossible. It would be mm-hmm. hard to find someone who can carry the weight of the charisma and. Um, also, the singing talent, once again, Sasha Baron Cohen was planning on doing his own singing um, for the film. So that's another reason that's stuck in my car where it's like, well, OK, why isn't this guy doing it? Sasha Baron Cohen was going to do it. Um, it was the, it it was weird because it there were certain moments where I was like, I kind of wish this would have been him. But then during the Live Aid performance, I really liked that they used the official Live Aid audio um, and I like that you could tell. So I, I don't know. I feel like, and, and I saw an interview with, with Malik where he was talking about, he wasn't really trying to do a Freddie impression with his speaking voice either, because, you know, Freddie had the four extra incisors um, in his mouth that gave him a really uh, distinct mouth. Um, and if you watch interviews with the real Freddie Mercury, um, he, he, when he says his S's, he whistles through those teeth every time he says an S. 
obviously Rami Malek's face isn't built the same way as Freddie Mercury's, so that's not something he can imbue into his impression. You can't just sure. teach someone how to do that. So he said knowing that he couldn't do a full-on Freddie Mercury impression, he would go and try to get the essence of Freddie in his performance. And I think he did a really good job of that. Once again, I don't see how you couldn't translate that to a vocals performance, a singing vocals performance. Right. For me, I think that's more of a plus one when it comes to a performance like that. And Malik is one of the few people that... So if if we're going to compare... I say compare. That's a bad word. If we're going to look at Walk the Line and Bohemian Rhapsody side by side, what I got, because I was thinking about Walk the Line... Because I, I kept kind of going back, we just we just covered a Star Is Born, and I was like overly impressed with Bradley Cooper both singing and playing, and really altering his voice in a way that was like, is that Bradley Cooper? Um, and so I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about Walk the Line, and I started as I was thinking about wondering if Malik sang, which I didn't believe he did because, as you mentioned, Freddie Mercury's voice is that unique. Uh, it cannot be, you know, it can't not be rec- uh, replicated because obviously Mark Mattel is doing it just fine. But there was a there was a quote from an interview with Malik, and he says it's in in reference to the to the lip syncing and the the songs themselves. He says it's an amalgamation of a few voices, but predominantly, it is my hope and the hope of everyone that we will hear as much of Freddie as possible. I think that's the goal for all of us. And I think that's where biopics succeed for me as a whole is when it captures the essence of the person or event that's taking place. Again, I say that very subjectively because I know that there are things that could be included in a biopic that would enhance that or diminish it. And by choosing to ignore it or recreate it or change it in some way to fit your own personal narrative is in a lot of ways, very wrong because you're then making up his, you're, you're rewriting history at that point. But when I look at walk the line, I never once thought Joaquin Phoenix looked like Johnny cash. I never once thought that. And I didn't care because when I heard him sing and I watched him move and I saw his mannerisms, I said, that's Johnny cash. That's his portrayal of Johnny cash. And I think that the filmmakers, if if Sasha Baron Cohen, when he backed, when when he was taken off, and when they chose not to use him, I think they were putting all of their bets on someone looking like and acting like this particular person, and not on sounding like. That may be a faux pas. That may be something that they should have said. Well, if you're going to go that far, you might as well get him to sing. And I think that there's some legitimacy to that because that would enhance the fact that he pulls it off as an actor. I think would get further enhanced if he were to able if he were able to sound like Freddie Mercury. But to me, realistically, I think that's pushing it a little further than what they could do. And I think they probably would have fallen flat when it came to that. And I'm so in that regard, I'm glad that we had that combination of original Freddie Mercury and Mark Mattel because Malik, in the way in which he lip sync and I, I gotta believe he actually sang these you know sang these songs as he was performing them but obviously not might um in a similar way as uh rebecca ferguson was vo- uh, voicing the um i can't remember her name now from the greatest showman but but how the the actress um she 
she eventually she was actually singing to the audience in order to create that em- emotive um performance that she gave and i i think i think malik did that and i think he did it effectively and so i never while i had that in the back of my mind that he's not really singing this i didn't think for once that he wasn't performing like what he thought freddie mercury would be performing like i think that i think you're right and i think they did a good enough job editing around it um there are only a couple of moments that I didn't really, really like the lip syncing. The first one was at his birthday party mm-hmm. um, when he's at the piano singing Happy Birthday, Mr. Mercury. It didn't sound great um, as far as it felt like it felt like the the Bane problem in Dark Knight Rises where it just kind of feels like <laughs> just like God's talking like, you know, it did. It, he was lip syncing, but it didn't really look like it was coming from him. Um, I was listening to the audio uh I don't know if I've mentioned this or not. I'm a big audio guy. I did sound professionally for four years and still kind of moonlight as a concert production front of house sound guy. So I pay super close attention to that and even doubly when there's music involved in a movie, um, except when when a movie's about music. And one of the things I was listening for, or I was, I was noticing in the audio is I think a lot of the the I think this was a bear to edit the audio for because I think what they were doing is they were taking a lot of Moloch's live vocals where he sings words that start with like B or F or P, any of those like plosiony sounding things and mm-hmm. and putting them at the beginning of those words because they sound like they're really coming out of that microphone. But then on something like, you know, the S's that Freddie has where it whistles through his teeth, you can hear that in the audio too. But as far as what you were saying, as, as far as nailing the essence of Freddie and his physicality, it's kind of incredible. And I was a little nervous by the trailers. Um, one of the things I tweeted, you can find this tweet probably still, is that in the trailers... I didn't feel like he moved right. And that fear was gone entirely in the, in the, in the film, uh, writ large. In the trailers, he looked like he was playing a little too effeminate and like lilty, like leaning back almost like a, like a Jack Sparrowy way. And Freddie Mercury was straight as a board. His posture was incredible. Mm-hmm. And he nailed that in the movie. The other thing is his sort of arm when he came out and and stuck his arm out and and really like held the notes out with it it looked a little too choreographed um whereas freddie there was like a like a purpose and a punch to it that was almost it was less a dance move and more of an aerobic thing that he was doing right and i i watched an interview with rami malek where he was talking about how he had a choreographer teaching him how to dance like uh freddie mercury and he realized i don't need a choreography i don't need a choreographer i need a movement coach and he hired a movement coach that's for sure to help i I think that and i think that went the having the that separated the the performance from my original fears and there's one small thing in his speaking voice if you notice once again because freddie's got that unique mouth he licked his lips a lot, but it looked mm-hmm. really strange under the under the teeth. And Rami Malek does that. And the first time I noticed it, I was like, whoa, he nailed that. Like, he totally got that little tongue flick that Freddie Mercury does. And it's this really, really subtle thing. But it goes such a long way into 
imbuing the character with an authenticity. Yeah, and by I think I can't remember what the moment was, but I know there was a there was a point in the movie where I completely immersed myself in Malik's performance as Freddie Mercury. And I think when you can get past that, when you are seeing a portrayal of a famous person, um, whether it's him or whether it's Johnny Cash or whether it's Jamie Foxx uh, in his performance, I think at some point you are sold because of what the actor is selling you that you start enjoying the story. You start enjoying the journey of the, of the, of the character of the person that the movie is, is telling its story about. And the earlier you can do that, the better. I think it probably for me was the moment that he auditioned (laughs) for his would be band and then he walks away and said, you know, I you know, hope to hear from you guys soon. And I was like, okay, this is, this is him. Okay. So that's probably like what, 10 minutes into the movie. And, um, and I just thought it was fantastic. And I love when I can just lose myself in a, in an actor's performance where I'm not constantly saying, Hmm, that's not quite right. Or, Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's Malik being, being uh Mercury. No, I'm like, no, this is, it's Freddie Mercury. And, and I think he does a, a phenomenal job. Now, one of the things that, that I picked up on that I don't know if this is a criticism, uh, at least I haven't read anything specifically about it, is that there was definitely a shift in the pacing from the first half of the movie and the second half. And first of all, I wanted to know, if, did you pick up on that at all? Yes, I was getting kind of annoyed um, with 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 the pacing of the movie because I felt like everything was just coming up Mercury. And yeah. I was like, come on, guys. I know we need to tell the story. We need to tell it fast. But you have a two, a two hour and 15 minute movie. Like, let it breathe a little bit, you know, because they were they were. He he goes and sees the band and then he auditions and then he's but at that same night he meets Mary Austin and then he does his first gig and that's when you see him get his little half microphone stand thing and then after that they're you know they're at his birthday and then he gets the call for the for the record deal he goes and gets the record deal immediately comes back, comes home they tour Japan they which we don't see they he proposes to Mary Austin. Mary says yes. The band bursts in, says, "Hey, good news! We got a tour in America." And I was like, "Whoa! This is so much so fast." Mm-hmm. I was just like, "Nobody's this lucky," and it was, it was, it almost became like death by a thousand paper cuts, where it was okay. It was just like, okay, I, I understand. We need to move this along. We need to tell these beats, but you know, there's the scene where he's talking to Jim, and he says that. He doesn't like to live in the moments in between the big moments. And it felt like the movie was like that. And yep. it was it was kind of grating on me. And then we we slowed down in the back half. And that that, I think, is the stronger portion of the film. I agree. I think it is. But I think it's also intentional the way that the tone shifts. Um, I was talking to a friend of the show, Scott Kelly. I, I guess I think you know him. I think he writes for for real world theology and um He's quoted as as saying that um, his quote is, I think it's rather revealing on the critic side that they look at this 
this pacing issue, and they think it's bad, when in fact, it reflected their life so well. They claim that the beginning is so rushed, but that's pretty much how it was for them. They really skyrocketed quickly, and then when the drama within the band started, or and I would probably disagree and say, I guess the drama with, with Freddie started, things slowed down on the whole, and then Freddie's tragic descent began to speed up. And I... I agree with this for the most part. I think that knowing what I know, I'm not really, and you you can attest to this. I think did Queen ever have first of all did Queen ever have that kind of conflict? I mean, were they ever at a point of breaking up? I don't think they were, right? That I'm not too sure about. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, that Queen at Wembley DVD I have, he has a uh a moment where he says there's a lot of rumors going around lately about this band called Queen, and it says that we're going to break up. And he turns around and shows his butt to the audience and points at it, and he says, they're talking out of here. He said, we're going to okay. be, he says, we're going to be doing this till we die, uh, okay. which was kind of the case for, for Freddie. And even, I mean, Queen's still around right now with everyone except Freddie. Okay. Um, so, you know, they just played several shows in Las Vegas with Adam Lambert. Okay. It, so. Interesting. Okay. Well, in looking at, at what Scott talks about, I think that I agree with the intentionality of it. I think that the filmmakers wanted to capture that fast and furious rock and roll lifestyle because of the fact that later on in the movie, again, within the confines of this narrative, we see Freddie wanting to breathe a little bit, wanting to take a break. Now, whether it was to do a solo album or whether it was to begin learning and understanding who he was, I think that that tonal shift was intentional. And I think that rapid pace leading up to the fast lifestyle and look at all we got. I don't think, I think it was less about them getting stuff so quickly and luckily because you're right. Nobody is that lucky. They don't just get these gigs. In fact, one of, one of my other favorite scenes is when they're sitting down at um, it's just after they've gotten the call that they could be signed. And the, their future manager comes over and says, you know, basically why should I bring you on? And they all give their individual answers, just basically saying, we're different. I'm different from him, and he's different from him, and we're different from each other. And we're going to be a different band than what people are going to expect, and that's who that's who we are. And that's who you want on your label. And I think that because of that kind of attitude, um, that probably would have gotten them... I don't think that would have gotten them the deals. Like They, they didn't sell out to who who they were they were a part of, you know, with, um, and that, that comes through whenever they finish their, the, uh, the album with Bohemian Rhapsody on it. But I, I don't know that the film articulates that they got everything they wanted so fast. I think it articulates that the rise to stardom was a blur for Freddie Mercury in particular and the band obviously as a whole. And then once he was at the top, He's sitting in this almost lonely place because his relationship with Mary is is breaking down because he's starting to understand a little bit more about his sexuality and that's starting to conflict. And then, of course, I think the real the real peak of that section of the movie happens when he and Mary are when they have that conversation, when he when he talks to her and he says, I think I'm bisexual. And she goes, Freddie, you're gay. And that was a that was kind of a wow moment for me. Because I think he was trying to say, I want to hold on to what's good in my life and what's potentially exciting or something new. And she's like, no, 
it's one or the other for you. Um, and that may be what I think Michael Ward was talking about in our social media about how the movie is sort of forcing Freddie to make a choice about his sexuality. But in any case, I think what we have are these two halves of a movie that reflect the emotional lifestyle and the emotional resonance of what the band was experiencing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that, that I don't, I don't think they were trying to show how lucky they are. It just kind of played that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the, the things that I just ultimately made the movie. Okay. Like on the, on the decent side of okay for me. Um, I, it, but it, it just felt like, Yes, that was a blur, but we also could have slowed down for at least we could have pumped the brakes a little bit in that first half and not gotten, you know, the breakneck history of Queen until Freddie grew a mustache. (laughs) For sure. But I also think it speaks to um, a level of importance placed on what most of the audience and this may go back to the PG-13 rating of getting more of an audience into the theater that the focus on the back half of the film was about this uh, sexuality and eventually the contraction of the AIDS virus. One of the things that I read was that people, critics who who, um, who have a have a, a disapproval for the movie, mentioned that Freddie's sexuality was minimized and that his contraction of the AIDS virus was was sort of truncated a little bit. Did you pick up on that? Do you agree with that? And um, if I mean, go ahead. No, I I don't think that they diminished the AIDS portion specifically. If anything, they amplified the AIDS portion because, like I said, Jim, uh, what was what? Oh, what's his name? His partner. Jim, yeah, I just call him Jim. Just yeah, call him Jim. Jim, <laughs> Jim uh, officially says that Freddie didn't know he had AIDS till 1987. In the movie, they have him find out in 1985. So they they haven't found out a full two years earlier than he actually right. did. Um, so I don't think it diminished that. I don't think it diminished his sexuality as far as being a game man. Um, you know, I think there was enough of that in there. What I didn't like is that Freddie Mercury, at least to some degree by a, a textbook definition was bisexual. He did have female partners after Mary Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that scene where he says, you know, I think I'm bisexual. And she says, I think you're gay. I hadn't even considered that. Or no, Freddie, you're gay. I didn't even consider that that's something she had to tell him in order to get a clean break from him. I was yeah. looking at it of like, well, no, he was, he was bisexual. <laughs> like the, you don't just get to tell him he's gay when he's well documentedly bisexual um and i think that's where a lot of the criticism is coming from in that he says you know i'm bisexual and she says no you're gay and he doesn't really push back and say like no i'm bisexual or he doesn't have a moment where he's like okay i guess i'm gay he just he it, it just doesn't do anything with it but i think i was so in the headspace that this is freddie mercury's story that i hadn't really considered that mary would be saying that to him Mm-hmm. So that for her own benefit, you know? Yeah, yeah, because her, her relationship with him was very significant. I mean, she was a lifelong friend of his and uh, someone that he trusted. I, again, I don't know what creative liberty was taken with the wedding ring, but the importance that he placed on 
having her leave it on, never taking it off. It was less about being married and more about the fact that it was a connection for him, for him to her. And when this is how I translate the movie's interpretation of, of this whole thing. So this is in no way saying this is what I think about, about Freddie Mercury's life. But I think that that scene was equally about like what you mentioned. It was equally about her making a clean break and saying, I need to, I've got, I want to break free, you know, (laughs) not to use lyrics that way, but it was also about, I think it was the starting gun for him to begin to explore. Okay. Well, who am I? Cause I think I'm this, but from her standpoint, I'm, I'm that, and that, that might be a part of this and I'm not really sure. And that led to, from the story, it led to a chain reaction of exploration and experimentation. And ultimately it, it got him to a place of just being completely in the dark and completely in this dark place where he was like, I don't know who I am anymore. And that, that, I think that there is some valid criticism that that could be a story of any rock and roll lifestyle, whether it's fictitious or not. But nonetheless, I think that if that story is told well, it it still can be pretty powerful. Um, I love the scene where he's, of course, it's got to be in the rain because all the dramatic stuff has to happen in the rain. But he's looking at her and she's in the taxi and you know, they're, they're talking about, you know, you, I almost was, I, I almost wanted him to just get in the taxi with her and they, they leave. I mean, that was kind of how I was feeling and that may be naive and innocent or whatever of me, but, but whatever. But he he says something like, I miss, I miss you or something like that, or I miss my family. Uh, but, but what it leads to is her eventually saying, Freddie, look, people love you. You have a family that loves you and I love you. And I think that was the one moment, the moment in the movie that he felt for the first time that he believed that. He believed in actual, true, like being loved and not used at that point. Uh, I wish I, this is, this is the product of having a late night showing is I can't remember everything that is happening in a particular scene from a script standpoint. But I just, I remember the things that she was saying to him about validating that the people in his life, the band, the 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 people that he called family never stop loving him and never want to use him. They want him to be a part of their lives, whether as a band or just as a family. And I think for, from a dramatic standpoint, that was really effective. Yeah, I agree. Uh, once again, this was, this was one of the things that it was kind of a one, two, okay, let's have some time in between. Cause then he turns around and immediately breaks up with Pete and gets Pete out of his life. Right. And it was like, okay, well, I know there was some time between <laughs> sure. between that. And it was, I don't know, it was, like you said, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, but it had to happen now because it was still raining. Um, so it, I did like that scene a lot. I liked, I liked the way that it kind of showed his friendship and connection with Mary Austin is really kind of what broke the spell that ultimately anxiety had over Freddy. You know, you can say it was Pete or yeah, Pete manipulating him or whatever, but ultimately all of that, all of the bad choices he made stemmed from his own fear and anxiety. And I liked seeing that, uh, 
that he overcame it with his quote unquote soulmate because you know if if you like you said if you look at his relationship with Mary Austin in real life he left her everything when he died he was the godfather to her child that she had with David um you know they they had a really special bond um between each other and and he said that no one knew him the way Mary did and said that she was his only friend um and i think that scene did go a long way with showing how how much a friendship how much you need other people you know yeah and people that are going to edify you yeah you know ultimately i feel like this movie is a movie about reconciliation and i believe that even if it's not historically accurate i think there were pieces of freddie's life that he wanted to find reconciliation with so bohemian rhapsody as a movie i think does a really great job of creating reconciliation um not only with him and his bandmates even though there wasn't that kind of tension but him with with mary and ultimately him with himself in relationship to to all these things but the culmination of that i think lands its strongest point at the live aid concert now I have not seen this. In fact, I have it queued up after we finish up here to actually watch that portion of, of the Live Aid concert just to see what was actually, you know, took place. But something that I thought about afterwards, or not afterwards, but actually during the middle of the performance, because something that I didn't realize is about 10 minutes into the concert, I was like, wow, he's still singing. Like, there's no break. I mean, yes, there are panning shots and and all these different you know, drone things. And then there's close-ups of Mary and, you know, close-up of Jim and his bandmates and stuff. But the songs are just going and going. And I remember thinking, are they going to make this a 20 minute set? Because that's how long the bands had. And I, I don't know if you counted, but, um, I don't know if it was 20 minutes or not. So did you, did as a you matter count? of fact, I did count. Okay. <laughs> um, I, there was, there was a point, where and uh, I, I checked my phone. I didn't pull it out and respond to a text message because I'm a human being who lives in society. But I <laughs> checked the time on my phone, and I was like, "There's 20 minutes left in this movie. Are they gonna do the whole Live Aid set? They deleted two songs. Okay. Um, uh, crazy little thing called Love, which is I love that. That's probably one of my favorite parts of that set. So I was a little bummed by that. Um, I almost wonder if it's because Robbie Mollock can't play guitar because Freddie plays an acoustic guitar during that scene. Or during <laughs> yeah. that song. Uh, and then the other one was covered earlier in the movie. And this was something that kind of bugged me. It was We Will Rock You because We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions lead into each other. Right. And we never right. see that happen in the movie. And I was like, wait a minute. Why do you separate these two songs that are so intrinsically connected? Yeah. Um, and so those are the two songs they deleted from the set. And, but I, yeah, that live aid scene is killer for the most part. I think there's some shoddy CG in it. Um, it's one of those things. It's, it, it's tough. It's tough to do because. It's such a well-seen performance, and it's so easily available to right. to watch it. So it's it's hard to kind of capture that 
and I think he did a really good job of it by he mainly stays on the stage with them and this is actually it's funny because I'm praising that whereas in A Star is Born I was criticizing like I felt like they were too inside the people on the stage and what they were going through Mm -hmm. Um, and we never got enough shots of the audience Um, but with this I felt like we almost had too many shots of the audience because they were all CG for the most part I did like the close-ups we got of the audience because it it kind of helped alleviate my problem that I had with the Star is Born and that it felt like people were there. And um, they they nailed it. They used they took the original audio from the Live Aid performance and remastered it, and it sounds mm-hmm. outstanding in a theater. I actually. Uh, this movie was crazy popular this week, and I didn't see how much it made, but it had to have been a lot. Um, 50 million. 50 million. It, it was number one this weekend. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because my wife and I were out of town, and we were on our way into town, and we decided we were going to go see the movie. And we were just going to, you know, we were going to stop at home. We were just going to go right to the theater, watch the movie. We have a, we have a, a one of those restaurant theaters in our town. And uh-huh. so we were going to go there. Every showing was sold out. And then, not sold out, but we would have been too close to have it be worth it. And then uh, we decided to go to another theater that's not quite a restaurant theater, but they do serve food other than, you know, popcorn and hot dogs. And on our way, the showing we were going to go to, we saw it it went gray on Fandango because it had sold out. Oh, my gosh. um, And it was a full 45 minutes before the movie started. And that doesn't, my town's not that big. And so we ended up having to go to a 9.50 IMAX showing last night. Oh my goodness. Um, so I got to see the Live Aid performance at IMAX and it was friggin' dope. It was, it was really <laughs> good. The, the, like I said, the remastered audio and it was cool as someone who's such a nerd for that performance to hear the audio and see Rami Malek lip syncing and hear the little nuances in Bohemian Rhapsody where he switches up the phrasing a little bit and being like, Hey, wait a minute. That's the audio. That's the actual audio. And then, in um we are the champions when he says uh, you brought me fame and fortune and everything that goes with it i thank you all and he says it kind of all together like that that's mm-hmm. that's literally the audio and that's that's the point where i was like that's really cool that's that's a really really cool little touch that they did to actually get the phrasing right and use that official audio and remaster it to sound thumping in the in the theater and then so, because you haven't seen it, um, one of the things you'll notice is there's a lot of horizontal lines that come across. And what that is, is it's so loud that the audio signal was interfering with the video. Really? Yeah. So, what you're seeing when you're watching the the Queen Live Aid performance, it happens on several other Dire Straits performance and U2's performance also have this. Um, you see these horizontal lines come across the screen and it's because they were pushing the audio so loud that it was interfering with the video signal. So they can't clean that up when they go in and do it for DVD and Blu-ray because it's part of it. <laughs> um, That's great. Yeah. It's like it leaves its own little mark on history. Yeah. So it was interesting to see the live aid performance without that and there was actually a moment um where there's there's a gag about the soundboard getting turned up and there was a little piece of me that was like 
are they gonna go absolutely crazy and have the horizontal lines during the live aid performance i was like that would be one of the weirdest most inside baseball touches in a movie i've ever seen <laughs> and they didn't and I, I didn't expect them to but when i saw that gag i was like wait a second um there was just a little bit of me that that got real excited and i it was also cool to see it kind of in widescreen hd because the only version of live eight is in four three and um you know it was, it was just it was they did such a, a great job recreating the way the stage looked and um his movements and and just the way he he got across the stage is the stage it's really 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 rousing um like i said i'm as far as what's going on on stage as far as the audience goes i was less impressed because it's the green screen's real obvious maybe this was just in my imax screening um but it was really obvious that they were just playing to a green screen on a replica of the wembley stage um and it, it didn't it didn't look great and that's a so for me there was a part of me that was like yeah that's cool but queen actually did that in front of a hundred thousand people <laughs> i don't know that you could pay a hundred thousand extras to sit there and scream it yeah no Malik. but but <laughs> you know if you did that'd be pretty fantastic um i i thought the i thought the the performance was amazing. And I did think along with, is this going to be 20 minutes? Is this going to be the actual set? The side screens that showed the close-ups of him. I was wondering if that was footage that they digitally superimposed on those screens of actual, because I never actually saw those. If that was like real Freddy um, on either side, you know what I'm talking about? The, yeah, no, the, I was, yeah. I was actually looking for that and it was, it was Robbie Mullen. Okay. Okay. So yeah, with, with IMAX, I guess you could probably tell more than I could. I usually opt for the 2d cause it's the cheapest, but, um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic way to, to end the movie. And when you're talking about a movie that's about queen and about Freddie Mercury, I feel like, I feel like that was the, probably the better exclamation point. I mean, you knew we were going to get the 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 post credits where are they now or whatever happened to them but i thought as someone who doesn't know the history of these guys not having that connection in a way that someone like you does it felt fitting for it to end the way it began with essentially him coming onto that stage and something else that that scott pointed out he said the very first scene um, he called it a fantastic opener with the song somebody to love ends with freddie going through that curtain that we saw near the end of the movie Seeing the massive crowd as the song climaxes into the lyric, can somebody find me? And there's the crowd with open arms cheering them on. And he says it was subtle. He says, I think it went over the heads of many, but man, that was a powerful opener for me. And I agree. It, that opening scene became more powerful because of the story and how it came full circle back to this moment. And you just knew that the creative team behind this wanted to begin and end at that moment, even if there was history afterwards, to me, I felt like that was a deliberate bookend to this is the story we're going to tell. It's going to start at Live Aid. It's going to end at Live Aid because we feel like that's the biggest piece of their life as a band. I, I don't this is the one thing I don't know. Maybe you can clarify, but were they losing? I, I think it's true that they they'd lost ground in the U.S. because of some of the because of that music video that they oh I want to break free yeah and that 
in in some ways, I think Live Aid was a chance to maybe earn the audience back or win the audience back. At least that's the way it's described to me. Was that was that somewhat accurate? Do you feel like do you feel like Live Aid was a chance at redemption for them as a band to get that that American audience back? I think so. I think Live Aid was as a whole. I almost feel like we need a whole movie about Live Aid because that thing is amazing. If you go, there's a a, a there's a four disc DVD and Blu-ray set out there. Um, that's every part of Live Aid. It's it's all three um stages from okay. Live Aid and just pulling that much star power together for one concert where nobody took any money under one cause you know it was the same you know Bob Geldof that that did We Are the World um just that I think there's there's so much historical importance and not you know it's not going to be remembered as a, a historically important moment outside of musically um but I think there's there's so much you know redemption for a lot of the performers in live aid because you know they joke about in the movie that they're going to be up there and seeing um they're going to be like who are those dinosaurs where's madonna and the crowd goes absolutely insane for these guys right um you know and and it's it's a really cool moment to see them understand that and then at the live on Wembley DVD, which was a year after Live Aid, um, they sold out Wembley again. It's another hundred thousand people, and he makes a joke about, "Hey, we're not doing too bad up here for four aging queens," which they actually worked into the scene. And right. it was it was definitely this moment of, "Oh, we are still, you know, we're we're still relevant. We're still right. something that someone gives a crap about." And I don't think there are a lot of performers who can say that. I mean, you know, bands like Aerosmith uh, and and Queen have stood the, te- the you know, when you when you can be a band and you can not just stay together, but when you can stay relevant, I think that's what uh, I think that's a huge deal. Yeah, and I, I, you know, Aerosmith is another one. They're using their original lineup still. Um, the Rolling Stones, for better or worse, uh, if. If you didn't like that Super Bowl Rolling Stones performance, go watch Scorsese's Shine a Light. It's much better and from around the same time. <laughs> um, but they're, they're using a lot of their original lineup too. And they're, they're still at it, man. Uh, Kiss is going out on a world tour. Um, I'm not a huge Kiss guy, but you know, they've built a brand that people love. And they're going out on a world tour that's kind of one of their, their final things. Uh, Metallica is still using their original lineup and they're still selling out arenas and stadiums across the country. That's crazy. <laughs> That's just, wow. I, it, it blows my mind. And these are all these bands that you mentioned are from different decades. So it's not that the most sought after bands are the most popular bands or long, you know, bands that have the most longevity are from a certain decade. I mean, you've got seventies, eighties, nineties. I mean, I don't know if we're going to have, I guess we'll find out in 20, 30 years if there's a band from the early aughts in the 2010s that will be around and have the same lineup and still be pumping out good music, um, I guess. But it seems like the latter part of the last century brought us these kinds of bands that had staying power. Yeah, I think on a large scale, yes. I think there's there's still some people. My favorite band of all time is a band called Old 97s. They're from the later 90s. Um, but there's, I mean, they've been, they've been doing this for 25 years and they're still touring and 
I see them on almost every tour and they're using their original lineup. Um, so I think a lot of the bands from this era of music, the, the aughts and the 2010s, I think are going to be found more on an indie side. Mm-hmm. Um, then on this, just music has changed so much as an industry in these decades that it's, it's so, it's unrecognizable from the eras that these guys came up in. Absolutely. Well, if you don't have anything else, um, we can move into our connecting points. Uh, I have one thing that I gotta cool. say, I, I was furious about this. I, I, I was upset. Like I took my glasses off and said swear words when this happened. Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> It's the scene when they're talking to the record exec about Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. And it's the guy's played by Mike Myers and he's going on the scourge against Bohemian Rhapsody. And in the middle of it, it cuts to him at his desk, dead center of the frame. And he basically looks at the camera and says, this isn't the kind of song that teenagers are going to be banging their heads to in their cars. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. Like, I... I wasn't going to walk out of the movie, but I was like, I got to go to the bathroom because I'm so mad. I didn't, <laughs> but I was furious. Like I could, I was like, this is a professional movie made by professional people. How dare you? You make, you make a Wayne's world reference. <laughs> oh my goodness. That, uh, it didn't hit me nearly like that, but, um, it was definitely memorable. And it took me a minute when I saw Mike Myers, name on the credits, I, of course I'm going to look for him. And it took me a, a couple of takes to realize who he was. Um, but yeah, I picked up on that and I kind of groaned a little bit. I was like, did you really put that in there? I mean, come on. This isn't. Now, I will say this. There were there were a number of lines and there was a couple behind me that got more tickled by these than anything. But there were a couple of lines that just made me laugh out loud. Uh, and not just from the not just from the trailers, you know, I'm you know, there's only room for one extravagant queen in this band not just that but there but there were a handful of others and i don't know if these were actual lines spoken by the band but i think they were very consistent with the attitude of the band uh as they went throughout their career and it on a whole i think the the screenplay itself the the dialogue and the scripting was was pretty great yeah i think there's a lot of good gags in it it Mm -hmm. keeps things light and kind of on its feet for it doesn't feel like it's two hours and 15 minutes which is good for uh, sure. Yeah, I because I just I literally walked out of a screening of Suspiria into this podcast, and uh, wow, that movie felt so long because it's two and a half <laughs> hours. Um, but it, yeah, I think I think that they did a good job getting the essence of everyone and Gwilym Lee, Gwynlin Lee, Gw- the dude that played Brian May looks exactly like Brian May. Okay, it's crazy. I, he looks he looks more like Brian May than Rami Malek looks like Freddie Mercury. Really? Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to I hope they have some close ups at the Live Aid concert so yeah. I can do a little cross comparison there. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, man. Like it it looks like they de aged Brian May and he actually played himself. <laughs> not not entirely impossible. We've seen yeah. Tron Legacy with uh yeah. with Jeff Bridges, so who knows? He's probably doing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't you uh, why don't you get us going with our connecting points? Sure. Um, mine was mine changed because I knew I was coming on the show and I knew I had I had the connecting point. And so the, my first one was when he's apologizing to the band and he talks about how he um, needs uh, 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 how he went to do the solo album and he hired a bunch of guys 
um, and told them exactly what to do. And the problem was that he they did it and he needed them to give him the pushback. And I was like, oh, that's great. That's that's. And that's like the the Ryan Gosling thing about jazz, even in in La La Land, right? See, I'm filling Aaron's shoes, and uh, um, <laughs> get your La La Land, uh, Land reference in there, right? Yeah, where he says like <laughs> it's push and it's pull and it's compromise and it's all very very exciting, and that's that is what music is. And yeah. uh, so I, I really liked that part, um, but my ultimate one had to be this. I've mentioned it on the show already. I am by trade a front of house sound engineer, audio engineer. And the scene where uh, Jim Beach, AKA Miami Beach is in the soundboard at Live Aid. I don't think this happened. I can't imagine this happened. Um, and he sees the soundboard and he, it's it, there's the pieces of tape on there that say absolutely do not touch. And then there's a second piece of tape that's closer to where the faders are set that says no in all capital letters. I was like, <laughs> oh man, that's too real. You, <laughs> I was like, did you just ask the sound guy for a gag right there? Because you hit the nail on the head and then he moves the tape and bumps the faders up. Um, which did hurt my soul a little bit, but that was the, it made me laugh really hard. And I laughed really loud and really hard for longer than anyone else in my theater. And it was, it was, if it wasn't such a good inside joke for people who are in that industry, I would have felt a little bit bad, um, for laughing so hard at that. But it, man, it made me laugh. And my wife even looked at me and was like, wow, they wrote a joke specifically for you in this movie (laughs) (laughs) well i think it speaks back to what you were talking about with regards to the horizontal lines and that it that that thing that happened because of the importance of that concert it created enough significance to at least make it in as a joke or at least as a kind of a, a hat tip to that i i kept wondering because as someone who who I I think I can appreciate film. I mean, I help run a podcast sure. about the movie, so I would think that when you're when you're zoning in on this particular, you know, camera shot, and you keep going back to it, I'm like, something's important about here. Is something going to break? Are they going to? What's happening? And so, as much as I've enjoyed this conversation, if nothing else came from this conversation, I at least have now a revelation of what that was all about. So thank you, yes. thank you for for that revelation. I am now I feel smarter <laughs> knowing that. So MJ Smith, everybody. And you can hear the, you can hear the clapping in people's cars and in libraries when they're listening to this. Thank you. I'll be here all week because I'm at my computer desk. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's great, man. So for me, I think the moment that stood out, uh, and there were a handful, I've mentioned a a number of them, but there's this conversation that Mercury has with Jim after that big, you know, the big party at his house. And it starts with him. He's playing piano and you see, you see what came to be, you know, who Jim was before we know who he is. He comes and comes around. He's picking up, I guess, some dishes. And I think Mercury like just grabs his butt, and he just gets right in his face. And says, if you ever do that again, I'll basically end you. And I'm like, whoa, I, I haven't, you know, that has not happened before. And for, you know, the first time Freddie Mercury's been stood up to by another man, and then um, he said something that indicated, yeah, I'm. I'm gay too. And I, there are several things that I love about this conversation. One, they share an intimate moment, not just the kiss, but they share an intimate moment where they're just sitting on the couch talking. And I think it's the first time 
that Freddie Mercury is shown having a relationship with somebody or having an honest conversation with somebody other than, other than Mary. And, um, the conversation just leans itself to him saying, you know, I feel just isolated. I don't really know what I want. And what I think defines the film's greatness for me exists in the character arc of Freddie himself, discovering who he is, where he's going and what he's capable of. And the movie seems to answer the second and third question fairly early on and fairly and pretty deliberately. But the big question that we really latch on in this journey with him is slowly being answered as as the movie moves on. And Jim and Freddie, they sit down and they're talking and the conversation in, ends with Jim leaving. And as he's doing so, Freddie says, I like you, Jim. Not like I love you. And so when, when you say I like you, it's... <sighs> There's something about just saying, I like you, I think is just fantastic. And then Jim says, I like you too, Freddie. Come find me when you like yourself. And there's two things that I want to point out. One, Jim's relationship with Freddie doesn't come cheap. This could have easily been another opportunity for, for all intents and purposes, for this guy to get a shag with a, with a rock star and for Freddie to just have somebody else to, you know, to shag. This is a very, this becomes, even without knowing it, historically, this was going to become an important friendship. Uh, whether it was a dating relationship or whatever, Jim was going to become someone important to Freddie. You know, with anything having value, it it should come with a an expense to it. It shouldn't be cheap. And secondly, this is the moment that I feel like the journey of Freddie's identity starts to get a bit more deliberate I think he's been autopiloting and experimenting and just saying, okay, what's going to work? What's not? And I think that deliberateness working to come to terms with his sexuality, whether it's being gay or bisexual, um, his relationship with his bandmates and to the fans. And the reality is, um, cause I've been kind of experiencing this with, uh, a relationship that I have with someone who, um, is battling alcoholism and he has constantly, said I can get better I can get better and just recently has voluntarily checked into a 30-day rehab program to detox and which is I'm incredibly grateful for but the fact is it has to get darker before it gets light for him and for Freddie Mercury to find out what and who he really is and I like that the narrative, even if it feels like a trope of this is what happens to rock and roll stars, or even if it feels like something that we've seen before, knowing that we get to experience that with him, that authenticity, I think, is still there. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel made up. It doesn't feel repetitive to me. I, I have a, an empathy towards Freddie because I feel like this is the first time where he wants to know who he is. He doesn't want to just play a part. And when you couple that with the live aid concert and you see cuts back to Jim and you see him, uh, even before that, uh, having tea with his parents, there's a, there's just this one just tender moment where he puts his hand on Jim's hand and he says, Jim is my friend and not my boyfriend, not my lover. Jim is my friend. And I see that articulating that this person is very important to me as opposed to this person is just who I'm with this week. I don't know that Freddie Mercury ever says that to anybody else, but 
but him and I, does he say it to does he say it to mary too i'm not sure i don't think he says it to mary but he does tell mary that she's his soulmate okay but i think both of those relationships as as they're supposed to be i think they both uh lend themselves to being the most genuine in his life and that that conversation really begins to formulate what I think is a the beginning of his redemption story. Yeah, all those moments are great. I really like that scene with the tea with the parents a lot. Yeah. Um, because like you said, it's not just... And this is also the first person since Mary that we've seen in the movie that have met his parents. True, true. Um, That's very, very true. Yeah, so this it's, it's a really important moment. And I really like that moment he has with his dad at the end where he says, you know, good words, good deeds, good thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, that that whole scene's really tender and great. I mean, it's a little schmaltzy that it's, it's on the same day as Live Aid. Um, but I, I thought that it was really cool. It was a really good moment. I liked... One of the things I liked about the movie is how kind of low stakes the father-son conflict is because, you know, there's the the walk the line uh and even in in the the walk hard movie makes it a joke where the dad's just always he's always like the wrong kid died and yeah. you know it wasn't even that it wasn't even he didn't really have he didn't hate his dad his dad didn't hate him but his dad didn't like where his like the choices that his son was making and he kind of didn't care and would they would pop back in, in and out of each other's lives trying to reconcile that. And I feel like it's a really honest um, portrayal of how people's relationships with their parents are. Obviously, with Freddie Mercury, that's writ much larger than most of us um, yeah. because he was a rock star and we're not all rock stars. But I think it's really relatable. You know, I can't relate to my sibling accidentally getting killed in a saw accident and then my parents being upset because they think it's my fault. That's not, that's not a relatable thing, but I can relate to my parents being disappointed when I make a choice that they don't agree with. And then eventually reconciling that and having an understanding over those decisions. Yeah. And it was, it was good that I think that it's that subtlety that makes it feel more authentic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel deliberate where, we don't have this thing hanging over our head the whole movie, like, how are things going to work out with him and his dad? And so what feels like somewhat of a movie trope, oh, yeah, Rubble Kid's going to go off and disobey his parents, that was really never his thing. But the story was about him saying, this is what I need to do. And his parents, his dad in particular, was really more collateral damage. But it wasn't really that much collateral damage. And so I feel like the T was reconciliation but it was reconciliation that wasn't necessarily being asked for. It was sort of like, ah, well, here's a little bonus for us that we can find that there's mutual respect at that point. Because I don't believe that his dad was ever, and again, I'm projecting, but from what the movie is telling me, I don't believe that his dad was ever fully like in agreement with his lifestyle. I think he was proud of his son for finding confidence in who he was because at the beginning of the movie, it seemed like that's the thing that he was that's the struggle that freddie was having he kept going out to these clubs and doing these things where his dad was like look you've got a life that you can live he's like i don't want that life but the fact that it wasn't amped up didn't feel like a trope it felt like okay this this feels more natural when it's not amplified because we've seen that story before you know rebel rebel kid leaves home to because his dad makes him want to do something he doesn't want to do and i like that it wasn't that in your face yeah i agree 
Yeah. Well, man, thank you for being on and filling and standing in the gap for Aaron this week. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having and me. This is a lot of fun, man. Good deal. Good deal. And if people want to find you or continue the conversation, uh, do you uh, hang out on social media? Do you have a life out there? What, yes. uh, what can you do for us? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at MJSmith891. I'm more active than I should be, I guess, but I'm very active on Twitter. Um, that's probably the main source for me. I'm on Instagram, too, under the same name. You're mainly just going to get pictures of me and my wife or my cat uh, um, if you follow me on there. and Or pinball machines that I've played recently. That's That's all my Instagram is. So if you want to see one of those three things or all three of those things, follow me there. I have my own podcasts, plural now. Um, one of them is called Real Perspective, and it's R-E-E-L Perspective. Um, and it's a, a weekly-ish conversation, some bi-weekly-ish conversation about current release films. The other one that we just released is called Formative Filmography. Um, we kind of chomped the feel and film double F thing. Uh, but Jeremy Calcara is, er, Jeremy, how do I say your name? <laughs> Jeremy Calcara is the one who came up with the name. So blame him. Uh, it, I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so, so that just launched, we have one, two episodes out on episode zero. That's the sort of an introduction in episode one. That's the official thing. But my friend Corey and I are going through our 100 favorite films of all time on that podcast. And episode Great. two should be out uh, next week. So is this a 100 favorite films like between the two of you, or is it going to be like 200 episodes? What Your, your number on 100 and is 100, or what, so how is that going to work? It's 100 episodes, and the first half hour is one of ours. We randomize it every time. Um, okay. We found a list randomizer. So we, we it's two movies per episode, basically. Okay. One, from, one gotcha. from my list, one from his list. Okay. Yep. And then and, uh, if we have a crossover, the person who has it higher on the list gets precedent for it. So then it's up to the the person who has it lower on the list to pick another film from the same director. Um, gotcha. Okay. Yep. Well, very cool. So yeah, you guys check that out. Um, as I will try to, I like the. Uh, I'm really more intrigued more than anything by your Instagram of pinball machines. That's pretty fantastic. Oh yeah, if, I, yeah. Uh, I I got super into pinball when I went to Vegas a couple years ago, and they have they have the the pinball hall of fame. It's off the strip by like three miles, but that's they have awesome. they have like 500 machines in there or something crazy. Oh um, my gosh! Yeah, I got obsessed and started watching tournaments on YouTube and tutorials on how to play better and stuff. So. Yeah, whenever I can find, whenever I can find <laughs> machines, I will uh, 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 play them and post pictures of them. So that's fantastic. Things I don't know, thanks to MJ yeah. Smith. All right, man. I, I feel like so educated right now because <laughs> I just discovered so many things about the world that I did not know, and uh, you know, things about Queen being probably the least important at this point in my life. So sure, well, that's pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and there's a there's a pinball machine cameo in the movie uh, Galaxy by Stern is in it and it ruins the lighting in one of the shots. So <laughs> yet another beef you have with it. God, come on guys. You're messing it up. <laughs> well, if you want to connect with me, you can find me at shoeless patch S H O E L E S S P A T C H. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Best way to catch me is to at me or to tag me in something that usually gets me connected to any conversation 
and uh, it lets me know that you want to talk to me, which always makes me feel good. I'm usually hanging out in the Facebook group, updating the weekly poll question. And uh, if you don't know how to get there, then you can go to our website, uh, Facebook or Facebook.com, excuse me, uh, feelinfilm.com. We have a link to our Facebook group, or you can find it uh, by just searching Facebook uh, under Feelin Film Discussion. Well, that's all we have. MJ, again, thank you for being part of this episode. It was fantastic. Um, if you guys, again, haven't had a chance to catch this movie, please do. And let us know what you guys think in the in the comments of our, of our Facebook group. Let us know what your connecting points are if you have them. And um, we really appreciate you guys listening. That's all for us. So uh, until next time, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.